Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, JJ Cooper, Carlos Colazzo here on a draft podcast. A 2020 draft in review. And maybe even a little bit of a looking ahead at what the 2021 draft looks like. And, and especially a lot of the challenges that, that, are, that are taking place as teams, you know, not start, but continue to try to build out their boards, build out their boards for, for a draft that is now 300 and maybe 70 days away, 380 days away, depending on when next year's draft is, is held. We'll see. You know, if there, is a, uh, if there is a 2021 college baseball season, which we hope, I mean, we'll see, you know, it'll be maybe tied again. Maybe it'll be in Omaha again next year, which was yeah. the hope for this year. The fact that you have to say maybe we'll have a 2020 college season is, is 2021. Yeah. Yeah. 2021. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? It, it is. But, uh, but we do thank you for the listening. We do thank you for the download. So to start with Carlos, now that the, uh, the 2020 draft is in our rearview mirror, we're starting to see players sign. We've seen a, a large number of non-drafted free agents sign. You see all that. What is your, Overall, you know, and having had talked to a whole lot of scouts already and, you know, scouting directors and all since the draft, what's your overall impression of the 2020 draft? You know, I'm kind of torn on it. I think, I think in a lot of ways, the top of the draft went kind of how we expected. I think there weren't a ton of surprises up top. I think it was interesting to see some of the names that came off the board later in the draft and in some cases as soon as the second round that that we just didn't have a ton of information on i i always want to get every single guy on our 500 that's drafted obviously and that that just never happens i felt like with 160 picks it would be hard for that not to happen but i i think it happened i think that just kind of speaks to how divergent teams boards can be um, but I also think there's a lot about this 2020 draft that we probably will figure out as we get further away from it and can see it with more context. But I think the biggest thing that I look at, just kind of looking at the picks and looking how everything went and looking at the class as a whole, is I'm just bummed that so many of these players are going back to school because this was the deepest draft that I've ever covered at BA. And having that be the class that runs into the shortest draft of all time is just a little disappointing. I'm very excited though, to see kind of where these players will slot in the top thirties and which guys will make the top 100. We're starting to have those conversations now. Um, And I'm just kind of ready to see what's going to happen with them next. Like there's a lot of unknown here for a lot of these players, even after they sign. Um, But yeah, I guess those are just my general thoughts. It's kind of, 
they're still evolving and they still will. But I mean, it wasn't too surprising up top. What What about you? What are your thoughts on how how everything unfolded? I mean, there was surprises at the top, but those were within, I would say, the range of, of kind of expected surprises. We thought yeah. that there was a possibility that the Orioles were going to go in a different direction at two. Yeah. And they did. And the Mar- the Marlins went a little bit a different direction at three. You know, okay. But I would say you look at the first round, and the first round, we'll talk about the Nick York pick. Nick York pick, it, it, you know, the exception. But beyond that, the first round, I feel like, was – I think he even go through the comp round, too. Yeah even through the comp round. And I would say even you get into the second round, the reality is, is okay. You know what? Jared Kelly lasting to the second round and the White Sox nabbing him in the second round. That's not a whole lot different than what the Mets did last year. Yeah. That's one of those where it's like, it's surprising that you see him available there, but that's exactly the player that like you expect to have a chance to slide and get overpaid. And that's assuming that's what's going to happen there. Right. So all of that makes sense. All that was normal. I guess I should Mm -hmm. say. And then you got to the third round. And from the third round on, we kind of had almost like two different drafts going on, which mm-hmm. we normally see. I'm not saying that we don't normally see this, but normally we see this kind of in the sixth through 10th round where some teams are all about money savers and some teams are still basically just letting the board come to them. And you got two different things going on. Mm-hmm. That started in the third round. And yeah. What that meant is, I mean, I think the overwhelming thing to me is, is this was a draft that if you were a first or second round talent, you were fine. You're going to make yeah. your money in this draft. You got your, you heard your name called right around the range that you expected. No, no real difference. Mm-hmm. After that, the, the players who really, I think, utterly suffered in this is that second tier, the third to seventh round college guy, the third mm-hmm. to seventh round high school guy, some of them aren't going to get their money. Some of them are going to get, were drafted or signing for way less than they would in a normal round, normal draft. But most of them I would say are still getting their money. Mm-hmm. The third to seventh round college guy, essentially yeah. in many cases was stuck with one of two decisions. Choice A, take way less than what is your value in a normal draft which by the way is already less than what your actual value should be right let's point that out (laughs) but instead of getting 300 350 400 thousand Mm -hmm. take way less than that or simply say i'm going back to school for another year and the fact that we had four members uh, to me generally if you are a rising you're going to be draft eligible and you make the college national team in a normal year those players are getting drafted mm-hmm. and we had four players from the college national team who were not drafted and we expect to see go back to school and without getting into each individual situation i can tell you very comfortably that the probably all four but at least the majority of them turned down basically well less than what they would get in a normal draft mm-hmm. to, for the possibility of being drafted in the third, the fourth, or the fifth round. And, I mean, I've been given stories of guys being asked, you know, again, not guys who are third-round talents, but guys being asked, will you take 20 to be drafted in the third when the slot is, you know, 500 or whatever, 1,000, and when you can get 20 as a non-drafted free agent and get to choose your team. So Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I will be interested when the dust clears on this, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, Carlos. I will be interested, in a normal year, we feel very confident in saying everyone's going to use their draft pool. And when I say if they're not going to use every dime of it, it's going to be within a few, generally a, you know, a few hundred thousand, I mean, a few hundred thousand dollars at most, which if you have a 10 round draft and you have 11.3 to spend and you spend 11.1, or if you had 10.5 to spend and you spent 10, that could be because a couple of little things didn't work out yeah. the way you expected. In this draft, Carlos, uh, you know, do you expect that we will see a team or two that may end up going well under their, uh, their total slot? Uh, I guess it, it kind of remains to be seen. There are still some players who I expected to be more under slot signs, uh, particularly out of high school, who, who are more expensive. Um, and maybe I should have just assumed that even if these high school guys, we don't have them ranked high, they still have a, a pretty high signing bonus because of their leverage and ability to go to college. So maybe that should be less surprising than it is. But at least right now, in terms of the official signings that have been passed on to us and that we have in our database, Right now, there's only one overslot kid of the, I think we have around 30 in there right now that are like officially done. I know there are reports of teams agreeing to certain numbers of players out there, but there's a lot of underslot bonuses right now. So I guess I wouldn't be shocked just because of the financial system in the game and the owners uh, talking about how they don't want to pay anything. I mean, we have a five-round draft because owners didn't want to pay more money. We have bonus deferments because of that as well. So it would probably be pretty foolish of me to be surprised if that were the case. It would suck to be a fan of a team or to, to be with a team that wasn't using all the money they were allowed to make their team better. Um, but I guess that's just kind of the reality of the situation that we're dealing with right now. I'm assuming that, that you expect a few teams to not use their whole pool. I, I don't know either yet. I mean, I really don't. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see because any team that is, I would say, any team that ends up spending well less than their bonus allotment i would describe that is basically as as ownership being very foolish agreed you know, if that 100%. happens like yeah the amount of money that we're talking about especially in 2020 that we're talking about you're not saving any money in 2020 effectively mm -hmm. you know you're because everyone's limited to a if you had seven picks in this draft, it's seven hundred thousand dollars in bonuses in twenty twenty. Yeah. Now you'll have to pay the rest in twenty one and twenty two. Which, again, but uh, the the total number, the total amount of overall bonus spending on the draft for this entire draft is minimal in the in comparison to the value that will be produced by it. Absolutely. You, know, like, you, you this is how you get you 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 sign a player for. $500,000. And then under the current system, at least, he then plays at the major league level, often producing a lot of value for $550,000, $600,000 for his first few years. And the, uh, the, the disparity between pr production, even when you aggregate it over the entirety of the draft, yes, there are guys who fail to produce, mm -hmm. but over the entirety of the draft, the surplus value that the top guys are going to be getting you is insane. It's massive. <laughs> it's massive. But yeah. the other thing I wanted to ask you is, is that, cause I got a lot of feedback on this. Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised not, I guess I shouldn't have been, but a little surprised with how much people in baseball were really frustrated by this draft. And I mean, kind of what you said, like mm -hmm. 
people in scouting, people in front offices, they like to believe in players. Yeah. They like the, the fact that they're fulfilling dreams of players, that these players have had these dreams for years. I, got, I, I was wondering what you got, but I've gotten a, a lot of frustration from people in the game who feel like that this was bad for baseball overall because mm-hmm. it really left them – there was a lot of apologizing going on yeah. in and after this draft. You had players who were absolutely draftable players signing for $20,000 where they would have gotten much more in a normal year. Mm-hmm. You had players who didn't get drafted who should have gotten drafted because it was a five-round draft. You have players who didn't get drafted who should have gotten drafted because even if it was a five-round draft, they were one of the top 100 players or so in the country. However, they weren't going to sign for way less than what their normal value would be in a normal draft. So you got mm-hmm. all these things going on. Did you get a lot of this? I mean, I got a lot of frustration not just from agents and players, mm-hmm. but from scouts, scouting directors, GMs, that yeah. level too. Yeah, I don't know if my, my feedback has been quite as uh, aggressive as yours, but I definitely talked to a lot of scouts who kind of understand that the players are getting screwed here. And, and I think it's pretty – it makes a lot of sense uh, that the scouting feedback of this draft would be disappointed, even if it wasn't about the players not getting the opportunity or the money they deserve. Uh, but also just not being able to draft uh, or even have a chance to draft a lot of the players that they really like. I mean, going from 40 to five rounds is pretty extreme. And I think a lot of scouts in the industry are still kind of getting used to, to what that's like. But I've talked with plenty of people who, when we were talking about the, the undrafted or the non-drafted free agent signings there, obviously all these guys are making their calls on the, the priority targets or the guys they just have to check in on. And a lot of the feedback I got from scouts was like, yeah, I honestly get excited when the players tell me they're, they're going back to school because they know in, in a lot of these cases, in most of these cases, that $20,000 for their talent is a joke because all these guys are putting dollar values on these talents throughout the year, how much would you sign them for? What round range should we target them in? And $20,000 is literally the bottom of the barrel. And we're seeing multiple, multiple BA 500 types who, like you said, in a typical year would be getting six figure signing bonuses. So I think there is general frustration with it. Obviously all the scouts before we, before we knew it was going to be five rounds, all of the scouting people that we talked with, wanted 10. It makes sense why they would want more uh, from that side. Um, so yeah, I think there is general frustration with, with this year. It's just, it's just not a good situation for really anyone involved. The scouts want to get players. Uh, the players obviously want opportunities. And, and we've talked about the financial limitations of this year. So I think it's fair to say that it, there's a general sense of just frustration with the system. So you said it, it, first round, I, I, I kind of foreshadowed this by saying it, it, I would say it generally went as we expected mm-hmm. guy may have gone higher or lower or whatever the one probably exception to that was Nick York who yeah. the Red Sox took in the first round uh 17th overall if I remember right I believe he was 96th on RBA 500 mm-hmm. now that we have now that we have the whole draft done yeah how shocked are you by that pick you know I even think at the time the kind of shock that was expressed about the pick was a bit overstated because, and I get why 
Uh, it's shorter draft. There's more emphasis. And it happened a little bit earlier than some of the off-the-board picks in previous drafts. But, I mean, if you look at some of the, the reaches that we've seen in the first round or even the second round on day one in previous draft, guys like Nick Jensen, guys like Corey Lee, guys like Ryan Jeffers, those were much bigger reaches than Nick York. Ryan Jeffers looks pretty good right now, and everyone thought it was a bit of a reach in the second round. So I think it highlights two things for me this year, the Nick, the Nick York selection specifically. The first is that I think it is hard to overstate how different teams' boards can line up. We obviously try and find the consensus on the value of the players based on the industry. That's the entire point of our board, to, to try and capture that. But I do think that very quickly on individual teams' boards, the differences pile up pretty quick, whether that's based on different drafting philosophies, different looks. Uh, they have different processes, so it makes sense that boards would, would line up differently. Uh, I guess one B of this would be the Red Sox didn't have a second-round pick. Uh, and in our scouting report for Nick York, the first line talks about how there are scouts out there who believe he was the best pure hitter on the West Coast among high schoolers. So that's guys like Pete Cronshaw, guy like, guys like Tyler Soderstrom, guys like Kevin Parada, who I really like, but we had ranked higher and who no one better than I when the first two were taken very early in the draft. So I think that while, yes, on consensus, Nick York was a little bit lower, I don't think he's as, as much of a reach as everyone kind of thought at first. And if the Red Sox thought there was a chance he was going to be gone before their third pick came around, which I think is a very real possibility. I mean, we have 96. Their second pick is at 87. Um, I think you just take the guy. If you believe in him, you take the guy. It doesn't matter what the consensus is. And I think the second part of this, too, is that this is such an unusual evaluation period, and we didn't have time for guys in the class to establish themselves more fully. I think the Boston – I don't know who with Boston specifically brought this up, but Andrew Benintendi, if you go back to his draft year – and you had the draft at the same time, Ben Intendi would not have ranked where he did at the end of the process. He didn't have the time to kind of boost himself up boards. And I think there is a delay um, at some, there is a delay in some sense when the scouts see the guys rising and when public facing services like Baseball America, when we get that information. Can, then Can I interject on that? Like, yeah, I mean, because again, I was doing the coverage during Ben Intendi mm -hmm. and I remember the first conversation I had with a scout about the possibility that Benintendi was a mid or late first rounder mm -hmm. was right at the start of the SEC schedule. So yep. we to, give a perfect, <laughs> to, to give a perfect example, like again, and understandably the Red Sox use that as an example, I can speak from absolute certainty not that it does not mean that if that year the draft had ended at that point, that Benintendi wouldn't have gone higher than, you know, but I can tell you if we had to stop four weeks into that season, Benintendi would not have ranked as high on our final board as he did. Mm -hmm. And he probably wouldn't have ranked as high on many teams, actual draft boards than he did. Yeah. But the, to me, the thing about York is, when this is all said and done, and I know that not all the deals are done yet, but I, I believe York has you know, actually is or is in the process of signing. But when this is all done, I would say that my best explain, explanation would be the Red Sox turned the first and the third round pick into two seconds. And I say mm -hmm. that because my expectation is, is that when it's all said and done, 
York will sign for less than slot at 17. Mm -hmm. And then Blaze Jordan was always thought to be potentially an expensive, you know, like a, a high asking price guy. Mm -hmm. And if he signs, as we expect he will, we expect almost everybody to sign in a five-round draft. Yeah. If he signs, as we expect he will, wouldn't be surprised at all to see him be above slot. Yeah. And so what they did is they went under, they're going to go under with one, I bet, and they're going to go higher than one, they, I bet. And so they spread out the risk. And they really mm -hmm. liked, they, they knew that they were higher on York than most teams. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll find out, you know, again, the, the, the thing that is the reality of this, and as we get into, I'd say, the other most unexpected pick of the draft, the thing that stands out about this is, is with none of these, do we know for two to four years at minimum before we know? Like, to give, you know, like we had, we moved Dylan Carlson up our list late, you know, a few years ago when the Cardinals took him. But the Cardinals still took him significantly higher than we had him, and there were other places that didn't have him in the top 200. Yeah. Well, Dylan Carlson was a great pick there. Dylan Carlson's one of the best prospects in baseball now, mm -hmm. just a couple of years later. It doesn't mean because you are different than consensus. I have no problem with organizations trusting their board and knowing we're going to go and we're going to zag where everyone else is digging on this guy. Mm -hmm. That works out. That can work out. Mm -hmm. It also does mean, though, if Nick York ends up basically being way over his head, well, then no, you know, then they're going to need to reexamine their process because mm -hmm. what did they do wrong? Yeah, I would say the more unexpected pick than York, who, as you pointed out, was a top hundred prospect for us, was also considered one of the best hitters on the West Coast among the high school class. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty high. That's a pretty lofty group. Was one of our ten sleepers on draft point that spit out. You know, all that, all these things. Evan Carter in the second round to the Rangers to me is a much more surprising pick mm -hmm. than York. And I say that because I'll kick it back to you, but I'll say that because York was a guy seen as a second, third, fourth rounder. Yeah. And probably wasn't going to be able to sign as a fourth rounder. Like he had pretty strong commit. It probably was second rounder bust about whether you were going to be able to, to spend the money to sign him. Mm -hmm. Evan Carter taken in the second round by the Rangers I feel reasonably comfortable in saying I'll be very conservative about it. 20 plus teams would not have drafted him in a five round draft. Is that, am I being unreasonable Carlos? I don't think so. I mean, it's hard to know spe specifically the number of teams who wouldn't have, but I mean, that seems fair. Carter, if we, if we publish state lists, like we, we typically do in, in normal draft years, he would have been a guy that's probably on our state list just because, because of some late feedback, but we definitely didn't hear his name thrown around in the industry as kind of like a guy that we had to have on our R500, which is why he wasn't on there. I mean, we that had was a surprise. I will one. say, we had, it's, I, I, I'm we, happy to say. We, we did. I know notes. when his name got picked on the broadcast, we were scrambling to, uh, to kind of find out who this guy was. And I was like, oh, we have something on him. It's not much. I, I really don't know a lot. This is kind of off the board pick, but. No, the, the Rangers draft, I think, is probably the first one that I would point to if you look at kind of just a weird draft, one that really doesn't make a ton of sense from our perspective. Again, I, I'm allowing that all the teams obviously know way more about these players, and we could just be light on some guys. But from the perspective we have now and the information we have now, it's a pretty risky class to me. I mean, Justin Foskey is a bat that 
we got about a bunch of chatter late in the process and he's going to move up. It sounds like most people in the industry really, really like Justin Fossey's bat. Uh, and if you believe in a bat that's going to stick in the infield, that makes some sense. But it's um, also but an instant under slot signing at that spot too. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, I guess my question would be, and I guess Evan Carter took a little bit of money to sign out of a Duke commitment. But after that, it's all like hideout high school guys. I mean, all of the other guys they took were on our 500, but they're all kind of projection types, guys that you really are banking on them kind of continuing their development. I mean, Justin Foskey is the one kind of like now guy. You, you can like look at his tools and look at his project, projection and feel pretty confident in it. Um, so I guess, again, you have to give credit to Texas for feeling strongly in the guys they took and just taking them. Um, but they definitely have to develop these guys for this to pan out. Uh, I'll be interested to see how these how these players look in a few years. And I think that also is part of the challenge in, in really intelligently analyzing a draft after the fact because there's just still so much we have to wait and see. But, oh, but and that, that draft is definitely one that kind of jumps out to me as a bit riskier, I would say, <laughs> at least based on our board. I don't know. What I, I, a lot of guys, when you say high doubt, those are, there were guys who – doesn't mean that they're not going to hit on these guys and be on the early end of them. Mm-hmm. But it was a number of guys who, you know, a lot of scouts describe them as guys that you let go to school mm-hmm. and basically, yes, you could absolutely sign them for less now than what you may have to sign them for if everything develops. But yeah. you're, you're basically factoring in that risk. Which because- if they do, if they hit on these guys, I mean, it's going to be a massive win for, for Texas, but Right now, again, this, this is the, the the overall like this is a difficult draft overall for everyone from the standpoint. I, I I do think that you saw also the other thing I would say overarching things we saw is I would say that there were teams that were clearly model teams more than others, mm-hmm. and there were teams that were scouting teams, and I, I felt like that that disparity was a little bit more this year maybe because this was a year where. You know, every most teams have some sort of model that they at least use as an inform to inform their drafts, mm-hmm. but those models didn't have all the information they normally have. Yeah. This year. And so I, I was very interested with that. Like uh, on a call after the draft, Mike Elias, the Orioles GM, said that one of the things they did was they tried to project out how these players would have played. Mm-hmm to help fill in their model, which I thought was very interesting. I, I, that, that was a, a new one for me. But yeah. that kind of is a perfect time to kind of shift it to looking ahead to, to 2021. This is going to be – I think that the 2021 draft is going to be much – could potentially be much weirder in many ways than the 2020 because the 2020 draft, Absolutely. everything stopped at a point where everyone had – already gathered a large amount of information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at the first two players that the Pirates took this year, Nick Gonzalez and Carmen Majinski. Both those guys, a a huge factor in why they were drafted where they did, where they went was the Cape Cod League. And the fact that that's not happening this year is going to impact a lot of these college guys' evaluations. Uh, Right now, a lot of teams are watching Perfect Game National. A lot of them are doing it over video, like I'm doing, there's a lot fewer scouts actually in person at that event. Um, and just the evaluation process in the summer is so important. We talked about this on the broadcast. We talked about this leading up to the draft here at Baseball America. But the evaluation period 
for high school guys, especially over the summer, is so, so important. And the 2020 class wasn't impacted at all in that regard. It was business as usual for their summer. So teams felt good about the evaluations. Kind of seeing how this summer plays out, if all the events continue on for the high school side, obviously there are not a lot of events going on for the college guys. Just how teams are able to manage that, how they're able to replace in-person looks with video, if they can do that effectively. If the kids feel safe going to these events, I'm sure there are going to be plenty of guys who, who might have gone to the events under normal circumstances, but either due to concern about the coronavirus or maybe pre-existing medical conditions for oh, themselves or family members. Like, family, uh, I mean, it, it's not just if a 17-year-old has concerns. What about if the 17-year-old parents? I mean, again, a lot of exactly. these events, I mean, you know. Yeah, and a lot of these events are taking places in states where the coronavirus pandemic is, is not going particularly well. So I think there are a lot of reasons to be concerned as a player going to the events and obviously as scouts. And, and MLB has tried to place strict rules, at least to this point, uh, to try and prevent some of those public health issues from, from creeping in. But I don't really know how you would contain it. If, if a couple scouts started to get sick, I would imagine MLB is pretty quick to kind of clamp things down if that happens or if the events themselves start to be canceled, you're dealing with a much bigger information gap than you were last well, year. Well, I mean, again, you just hit on it. On the high school side, as it stands right now, you're probably going to get to see the vast majority, at least right now, of the top high school prospects are scheduled or are playing in events, right, as we speak. Yeah. So that's out there. What has not happened so far Normally, normally it's one-stop shopping for the top college guys. You know, everyone, every scouting director, every national cross-checker, all those guys are going to watch college national team. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the college national team, year in, year out, has 10 or more first round, 15 or more first, second, third round picks that are playing on them, mm -hmm. on there. So, Again, when we just rewind the clock from last year, you got to see a significant amount of the top college players in the country all play there. Okay, then you widen it out and say, throw the Cape into that. Mm -hmm. And between that and the Cape Cod League, you saw most of the college first round. A few pitchers yep. who, you know, who basically shut down for the summer because of full workloads, things like that. Mm -hmm. But you throw that, the Northwoods and, you know, a couple other summer college leagues and you pretty much saw everybody during the summer. Yeah. Well, this year there is nowhere. There is like right now as it stands, not that there are not some summer college leagues playing mm -hmm. some events going on, you know, on the summer college leagues, but there's nowhere that's coming close to assembling it again. Okay. On the college national team, if you have a guy and he hits there, you kind of have a feel for what he saw talent-wise, what kind of pitching he saw. Mm -hmm. Even if you have right now, again, there's this league going on in Indianapolis. The Northwoods League started up. You know, there's going to be some Coastal Plain teams playing. There's different things. Texas is going to have some. There's different things starting up. But when I look at the rosters that are out there so far, the spread between the best players and the worst players in these leagues seems much more massive than it is in a normal year. Mm -hmm. which also means 
it's going to be harder to take as much out of that as you would in a normal year. Yeah, just the talent itself being diluted means the, the weight you can kind of put on performance is, is probably a little less than a typical year. And I think one kind of interesting wrinkle to this too is that I think this puts more more of a weight on your area scouts. I think there's a chance there's a lot more localized events. And if you have an area scout that kind of does a really good job bearing down on the top guys and can identify them early, whether or not they've, they've been a top guy or they're kind of turning themselves into that. If, if you have an area scout that identifies that early and gets your cross checkers or your national evaluators in to get looks at this point, that's going to pay off hugely, I think next year. Uh, and, and I think you might have more of like an old school style of area scouting where all your guys aren't going to these national events that the entire industry is at, but you're kind of picking your spots around your, your coverage area and trying to find players either working out or, or doing more localized events. Um, that we that we don't really pay as much attention to, or at least at least nationally, that we don't pay as much attention to over the summer. Uh, so again, I think it's going to be crucial for teams to to trust and be able to value what their area scouts are doing. I think it's going to open up a lot of opportunities for those guys at that level. And I'm curious to see if that kind of plays out next year and how how much of an impact they're able to have on on next year's class because of that. Well, right now it also means I think on the college side fall ball is going to be way bigger than it normally is because fall ball is going to have to be used to kind of build out your follow Mm -hmm. list. Whereas in a normal year, follow fall ball is kind of updating your follow list in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what is it, what should people, what should fans look for over the rest of the summer from a draft standpoint? What are kind of the key things that says, okay, this is going to be more normal you know, or this is <laughs> can we get a vaccine? <laughs> yeah, that that'd be nice. I mean, you know. I, it's hard to say. I feel like even from my perspective, I'm kind of going day by day with it. I mean, the fact that a lot of these high school events are still going on and and we're able to see them, it, you can still kind of get a feel for for how that class is kind of shaping up. But I I still think we're in uncharted territory. I don't know that it's going to be normal. I, I think we're already past that point. I mean. It's I guess there is no, yeah, there is no normal right now. There's, yeah. that, that is, I think that's definitely fair to say. Yeah. But it, it is what it is. And again, teams will figure out how to do this the best they can. Mm-hmm. And, and one other thing I'll say with that is, is that we are in a different world. If this was 20 years ago and this was happening, it would be way worse as far as being able to evaluate and scout because the technology is helping kind of bridge that, that gap. And that's huge. You, you, Again, games are important for players' development. I, I mm-hmm. absolutely believe that. That said, if I can go to a facility and I'm a pitcher and I throw and a track man, a rep soto, a flight scope, take your pick or whatever, mm-hmm. records that data and I can share that data, mm-hmm. well, that gives even, me, that's, that's a fingerprint. And for hitters, I can show how hard I can hit a ball. Even outside of the data, just having better video – ability right now. I mean, just having access to high quality video pretty much wherever you are, I think it's easy to fall in love with the data, but I think teams still really value being able to pour over the video and break down things in mechanics and see how the body moves in space, stuff like that. Even outside of the super high tech edutronic Rapsodo kind of stuff, I think just the general access to that technology overall uh, kind of evens the playing field a little bit when it's harder to, to get out the fields. I mean, does Nick Bitsko go in the first round without 
the the kind of video cameras and video and and data that we're talking about and like 10 years ago does Nick Vitsko go in the first round if he doesn't pitch in the spring I think it's a lot harder to make that case maybe he still does Nick, uh, you know with, with Nick Abel I mean I think also you say like with him he had helium mm -hmm. in a year where he didn't pitch <laughs> yeah. I mean one of the last times that any scout saw Nick Abel was probably his worst outing maybe of his life, you know, in USA, USA baseball for Team yeah. USA with the 18U team. Mm -hmm. But he had positive, you know, why? Because he showed like, hey, this curveball that he's developing is, is looking pretty good. Mm -hmm. Hey, his velocity's ticked up. Hey, he had all these things to go on top of that showed, or one thing, it showed how hard he was working, which mm -hmm. is also, I mean, some of this is also valid, validation data in some ways. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Teams want to see that guys are baseball rats who basically eat it up. Well, the data allows you to do that in some way. Yeah. So but Before we wrap up, are there, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to touch on, but I wanted to see if there was any picks that jumped out to you, maybe later round picks that really excited you or a particular draft class that, that you're really excited about now. I don't know if we've talked about this on a podcast. You and Ben might have on your, your draft night podcast. We did the draft night, but that was, you know, that was during, you know, the, that, that that was a little bit kind of, uh, I guess only the first day. Only the first day. Yeah. yeah, only the first day. Um, I can go first. Give you some time. I, I, I yeah, go. You go it. first while I think of of yeah. a couple. But go ahead. I think I talked about this on the broadcast, but I I still go back to it. And I'm looking at the fifth round, the Chicago Cubs pick at 147. Cohen Moreno. He was a guy that I was really excited to see this spring and never happened. I mean, he's like two minutes away from the office. Uh, in Durham at Panther Creek High. Well, I love this pick. I just think he's a, an awesome projection high school player, really athletic, one of the more kind of naturally gifted athletes in the high school class. I loved how he was trending last summer. He's got a fastball that's sticking up in the right direction. It's not overpowering now, which I almost kind of like because of some of the track record we've seen of, of guys who are trending up but aren't necessarily throwing – 100 miles per hour as high schoolers. He's got really good ability to spin a, a breaking ball, and he showed pretty advanced feel for a changeup as well. So I just like the traits of that. I like getting a high school talent like that in the fifth round. Um, and again, we're assuming all these guys are signing. I don't know if he, there was an announced deal with him yet, but we don't have an official signing bonus for him. But that's a specific pick I like. And then in terms of a draft class that I really like, we wrote about them. And I think we did uh, five classes that excite us. The Padres were one. And I feel like the last two or three years, I always come out saying I'm excited about the Padres class. I just love how they attack upside and they are aggressively going for tools. And they got Cole Wilcox in the third round after taking Robert Hassel, Justin Lang, and Owen Casey. Uh, and I think all of those guys have really exciting upside. And, and just getting two first-round talents and those like exciting high school guys in between, I really like everything about what they did. The one I'll go with is, and it's a little bigger picture, is the Royals. I love the Ace mm -hmm. of pick. I'm an Ace of guy, I think. Passed on Austin Martin. Yeah, Passed I know you're Austin the Austin Martin, Martin guy. Well, <laughs> five, five years from now, ten years from now, we'll re-examine this. We'll have to do what, it, yeah. You know, see which one of us is right. But what I really liked about theirs is I like some of the guys they took. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, I really feel like that – they really hit the non-drafted free agent market hard oh, man. and, and essentially turned a five round draft into a 10 round draft. If I say that because if you'd have said, if it kept rolling along, 
and they'd have taken some of the guys that they signed as non-drafted free agents, most notably Kale Emsoff. They had taken these guys sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth round. Mm-hmm. We would have said, we really like these picks. Obviously, they're seniors. Obviously, they're they're probably guys who are going to sign for mm-hmm. a little bit less. But these were guys who we absolutely looked at and said, yeah, I, I like these guys. I mean, they're five BA 500 guys on their undrafted list. And, uh, you know, right now, there are, I mean, again, already there are, we have a list up at Baseball America. Check out the top 20 undrafted free agent signings. And 19 of the 20 are BA 500 guys, which just tells you a little something. You know, yeah. that's. That's, that's, that's not normal. But I do think that that allowed them – if you end up getting one guy who's a useful player out of this non-drafted free agent market, that's, that's huge because you've just expanded your draft. Because let's I be also honest, think – You're no, not going to get – you're going to – if you get one guy out of your third, fourth, and fifth rounds in this draft who becomes a useful big league contributor, that's a good pick to, for that range of, of picks. I think we also should talk about probably like what is winning in a five round draft. I talked with some scouts before who said, if you get two major leaguers of any capacity in this year's draft, you did exceptionally well. What do you kind of see as a, a good draft when you only have five rounds and the 20 K undrafted limitations? Like, what do you think would be a successful draft? Cause I, I was pretty convinced by the, the two player argument. I mean, for most teams, that's batting 400. And if you ever did that in a draft, that's exceptional. But I wanted to throw that to you. I think it's a little bit overblown just from the standpoint of like where you should make your money, where you should have your success stories in the draft. You know, taking out the 20th to 40th round in a normal draft doesn't really affect anybody. Like, yeah. not that there aren't players who come through that, but everyone will admit if you hit on a – 20th plus round pick there's a certain amount of of scouting skill to that and there's a certain amount of luck Mm -hmm. because if you thought as a player if if you thought as an organization with very few exceptions if you thought that that guy was going to be a a a useful big leaguer you'd have taken him before the 20th round yep cutting out the the sixth through the 20th rounds especially six through 15th is a little different because i do think absolutely Teams absolutely take guys in the 11th who they think, oh, that guy could really turn out to be something for us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but the first or the fifth is where you should do the most of your da- draft damage in a normal year. Yep, for so sure. if you feel like in a normal draft, getting three good players out of it is a good draft, then saying two of this year's would, I would say, be, yeah. You know, and again, the other thing about it is, is like, we love players. We always talk about all the upside and all that. But we also acknowledge in most drafts, if 20 of the 31st rounders end up being anything other, you know, like big leaguers of any degree with mm-hmm. some stars in that, it's a really good draft. Yeah. If 15 of it do, it's a solid draft. Mm-hmm. You get to the second and third round, and there are absolutely players who were drafted on early on day two this year in the second round who – this is the last time that any non-absolutely insane fan is ever going to think about that. I, I don't mean that in a way harsh... to put a downer at the end of our podcast. I, I know, but but again, but okay. <laughs> no, it's good to point out though. 
but I'll, I'll give you a, a just to, to give you an example of this. I'm turning back the clock. 2015 class, at this point, we have a pretty good sense. Mm-hmm. Your 2015 class, Alex Young, Peter Lambert, Eric Jenkins, Tom Eshelman, Donnie DeWeese, Scott Kingery, Tony Santian, Brent Lilac, Austin Smith, Chris Betts, Desmond Lindsay, Lucas Herbert, Cody Ponce, Brady Singer didn't sign, Jeff Dagano, Andrew Stevenson. That, that's like the top, you know, 15 picks in that 20, 15, 20 picks in that class. In the second round. In the second round. But yeah. I'm saying this to, to give an example. Okay. Yeah. If you look at this, uh, essentially five years later, I would say Scott Kingery. I would say we'll still see with Tony Santiano, who's a high school pitcher, and does take longer. I would say uh, Nick Nider to some extent, to at least some extent, a little bit. Kevin mm-hmm. Kramer has been good. But, you know, I liked the Jeff Dagano pick at the time. Jeff Dagano basically lost his control very soon thereafter and is out of baseball. Desmond mm-hmm. Lindsay was an interesting high school pitcher. I mean, an outfielder in that class who just hasn't had injuries and hasn't hit. You know, there are, Donnie DeWeese has been traded. Eric Jenkins has been released. I, there, mm-hmm. My point is, is that in a normal draft, there are a lot of these guys who the, the baseball draft, you know, is a, a very difficult you're projecting five to eight years out on guys who still have three to five more development steps to go before mm-hmm. they're big league ready. This is hard in the NBA and the NFL. And in the NFL, you're literally drafting guys to step in and play. Yeah. <laughs> it's way harder in baseball. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I'm long-winded. I've missed getting no. it's, it's been fun. It's been fun. And I think a, a little dose of, of realism at the end is, is good for us all. So, you know, I also want to point out Really quick, I forgot to uh, to say this one, but someone someone had pointed out apparently in like a February chat, someone asked me yes. one of those questions like, uh, "Who is a pit? Who is a pitcher who makes sense for the Blue Jays at 42?" And I, I had like a string of pitchers who just made sense on the board, but one of those guys was CJ Van Eyck, and CJ Van Eyck went number 42 to the Blue Jays. So I just have to talk about how exciting that was. And whoever is like looking at our chats that long ago to bring that up. Thank you. Cause that was I, awesome. would have, I never would have known about that. <laughs> that was awesome. But that's a fun, you know, kind of look at the draft. We're going to be, we're, we're now shifting into, we'll still be wrapping up the 2020 continue. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, if you want to go team by team up at baseballamerica.com in the uh, July issue of baseball America, the magazine, we have analysis of basically for all 30 teams, we have, uh, you know, a, a lot more. Basically, we have the top 20 non-drafted free agents. We have our undrafted free agent tracker, which lists every player that we can find who has signed as an undrafted free agent. Which, by the, the way, up- those, those are still trickling in. So if you see any we don't have, just send me or, or DM Baseball America on Twitter, and we'll, we'll get them up there. But So that's, we got a lot more coming, but we're shifting also into 2021. So we're going to let Carlos go so he can get back to watching PG National as we start building out our uh, – our 2021 board. So for Carlos Colasso, I'm JJ Cooper. So long, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. 
Head to Hero.co to shop today.